Uh, we're in Romans chapter 11, almost through with chapter 11. I thought we were going to be through tonight, but hey, what's the rush? Uh, we're going to look at verses 25 through 32. Talk about Paul the Apostle, the inter- international manifester of mystery. All right, well, you know, I, I try, I really do. Anybody wants to suggest titles? You're welcome to it. Just email them. Who doesn't like a good mystery? Paul the Apostle, that's who. He's the chief user of the word in the New Testament, but he kept revealing mysteries to Christians. You see, in the Bible, a mystery isn't something that's hard to understand. It's a truth previously unrevealed, but which is being revealed. And so when Paul says, I show you a mystery or I tell you a mystery, he's explaining something that has never been revealed before, but he's letting you know what it is. One of those mysteries revealed by Paul is explained in this section of Romans. And so in verse 25, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. As we'll see, the mystery here is the identification of the fullness of the Gentiles not a subject of revelation really in the Old Testament. Paul seemed extremely concerned that Gentiles would be wise in their own opinion about God setting aside Israel and bringing the gospel directly to the other nations. Looking back over history, he was wise to be concerned because you see the prevalence in every generation uh, of anti-Semitism, incredible hatred for the Jews. And uh, just, uh, you know, obviously we don't need to say this, but there's no place for that in the church uh, and among Christians. Now, the blindness or hardening, as some translate it, is the aftermath of Israel's leaders officially rejecting Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Instead of ushering in the promised kingdom of God on earth, God is disciplining the nation of Israel, having dispersed Jews all over the earth. Individual Jews can uh, still be saved, and they are saved, But God is dealing with the nation as a whole in a very particular way. Meanwhile, the gospel goes out to the Gentiles until this fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, as we understand prophecy, this age in which we are living, it's going to come to an end when Jesus returns in the clouds to resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture living believers. According to one commentator, the Greek word translated fullness was a nautical term referring to the number of sailors necessary for a commercial ship to set sail. And the word translated come in meant to arrive at a destination. Paul was then using these metaphors to describe the church leaving the earth and arriving at its destination. With the church in heaven, God will then resume his direct dealings with Israel as a nation by taking them through the great tribulation. Now, one of the arguments we offer that the church will not be involved at all in the Great Tribulation is that the purposes of that seven-year period are clearly stated, and they have nothing whatsoever to do with the church. The twofold purpose for the time of the Great Tribulation is this. Number one, it's to bring to conclusion the time of the Gentiles. You read that in Luke 21, 24. And number two, it's to prepare for the restoration and the regathering of Israel in the millennial reign of Christ following his second coming. Gentiles and Jews are all that you read about during the Great Tribulation. The church is never mentioned uh, in Revelation 6 through 
19 until you see us coming back with the Lord. So we're taken out at the beginning of the Revelation. Chapters 4 and 5 describe the rapture and scenes in heaven. Then from 6 to 19, there's the tribulation, the seven years of it. And then in chapter 19, as the Lord returns to earth, you see us coming with him dressed in white robes. Uh, Many of those who say the church will go through the great tribulation say it is because the church needs to be purged and cleansed and purified. Is that how believers in Jesus Christ are made ready to go to heaven? Do they go through incredible tribulation, purging them, cleansing them? Well, not according to Jesus. He said in Ephesians 5, he will sanctify and cleanse us with the washing of water by the word that he might present her or us to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. And so we would expect Paul to say, Jesus is going to take us through, or at least the, you know, the last generation, he's going to have to take us through incredible stress and trial and tribulation in order to present us faultless before his father. But he doesn't say this. He says, no, I'm, what I'm doing with you guys is a whole different program. This is the washing of the water by the word, and I'm sanctifying you daily, and I'm going to present you holy and without blemish to the father. And that's going to take place prior to any portion of the great tribulation. Great tribulation has another informative name. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble, relating it primarily to the nation of Israel. Uh, now, certainly it affects the entire planet, you, you know, we say that, but, but to me, when you are talking about this time of trouble, this day of the Lord, this tribulation period, and then you add to that, oh, by the way, it's the time of Jacob's trouble, you're, you're putting a footnote on it and saying it's primarily about the Jews, guys. It affects the whole earth necessarily, but it's about Israel. <clears throat> the godly remnant that survived the great tribulation are pictured as Israelites or as Gentiles who aided Israel, not members of the church. And so um, I'm just not interested in going through the great tribulation at all. But I'm not interested in it because the Bible says I'm not going to and neither is any member of the church. Now God is of course dealing with Israel as a nation today. We talk about her being set aside nationally. It doesn't mean he's ignoring Israel. It means that he is preserving them and has been, and he's fulfilled his promises to gather them back to their land. But all of that is preparatory to his direct dealing with them, which will bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. The deliverer is, of course, Jesus Christ. He will deliver Israel in the sense that all Israel, all the remaining Jews on planet earth will be saved. Not automatically, not simply because they are ethnically Jews, all believing Jews will be saved. The prophet Zechariah tells us that the unbelieving portion of the nation will be killed. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each will say, the Lord is my God. The fire that God will bring them through, the great tribulation. 
Uh, let's pause for just a minute and discuss this word Zion. It occurs over 150 times in the Bible. The word Zion essentially means fortification. It was one of the hills in Jerusalem. The first mention of the word Zion in the Bible is 2 Samuel 5, 7, where we read that David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. And so Zion, therefore, was originally the name of the ancient Jebusite fortress in the city of Jerusalem. It came to stand not only for the fortress, but also for the city. After David captured the stronghold of Zion, Zion was then called the city of David. When Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem, the word Zion expanded its meaning to include also the temple and the area surrounding it. Zion was eventually used as a name for the city, the land, and the people of Israel as a whole. It says here that Jesus will come out of Zion. That means he must first return to it. The second coming of Jesus Christ to earth, it's a principal Christian doctrine. There are, in fact, more references in the Bible to Jesus Christ's second coming than there are to his first coming. I think about eight times more references to him coming again. It says he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. The Amplified uh, Version translates this. He will banish, righteous, uh, banish ungodliness. Excuse me. It is a description of the righteous rule of the Lord over the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. I mean, when the Lord's on the earth, you just say, hey, ungodliness is banished. It's done away with. Where's the debate? Yeah, it's, it's gone. There's, there's no debate. There's no, on any, you know, congressional floor or anything like that. There's no, the Lord just say, yeah, there's no more unrighteousness, no more ungodliness. You guys go out and uh, help me police that, would you please? Uh, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Doesn't mean everybody will be saved. It means that they will be in submission to the Lord and to his rule. In verse 27, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The covenant referred to here is called the new covenant in the book of Jeremiah. Here's what God promised the Jews that he would do for them. Uh, Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, it says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, after those days, we know this is yet future to us because this is a time when everyone knows the Lord. It can't be describing any other period of time when everyone knew the Lord from the least of them to the greatest of them. Can you think of a time when everyone in Israel knew the Lord from the least of them to the greatest of them? No, this is the future. This is the coming of Jesus Christ. God will forgive their iniquity and not remember their sin because they will receive Jesus Christ. If you want a precious nugget to hold on to tonight while we're studying all of this other stuff, it's that God remembers your sin no more. Isn't that precious? God can't really forget, right? And so because you and I struggle with this, uh, you know, we think, well, forgiveness and, you know, I forgive you, but I still think about what you did to me. I still struggle with that. And I, I promise not to bring it up, but God doesn't have a struggle with it because he sees what his son Jesus Christ did on the cross on your behalf. And he put your sins there and he just remembers your sin no more. And he has, uh, you know, 
that's, that's why it's so precious the, when we get to that part in Jeremiah where he says, I know the thoughts I think towards you. Uh, people are always saying, you know, there's a lot of times in messages or you'll think, you know, I, I feel like the, the Lord feels this way about me or, you know, I grew up this way. My dad was, you know, this or I didn't have a father or whatever. So, you know, it's hard for me to receive the love of the Lord and all. And then God says, hey, I know the thoughts I think towards you. So let me tell you what they are. They're thoughts of love and peace and hope to give you a future and a hope and stuff. And, we, and you should take that to heart. Anytime you doubt God's thoughts towards you, all you have to do is confess your sin, repent, and he says, yeah, I, I'm, re- I'm not remembering that anymore because of what Jesus did, and I know the thoughts I think towards you. They're not evil. They're not wicked. They're wonderful. And so get on board with that. Uh, you know, just agree with God for a change, and, and you'll be better off. Verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now, concerning the gospel going out freely to the Gentiles, the Jews were enemies of God's program. Paul's a good example. He was the chief persecutor of the gospel. They were enemies of the gospel, he was, until he got saved, after which he became the chief target of the persecutors of the gospel. And so, Paul, when he says, you know, uh, they are enemies of the gospel, I mean, he knows what he's talking about. He was one, and now he's being hunted as one. But the Jews remained God's elect nation, beloved by God because of the unconditional promises he made to the fathers, a reference, of course, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, who we would call the patriarchs. We always think of the word elect as a synonym for the word saved. With regards to Israel, it is God's elect nation. But within it, each individual must come to personal faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Isaiah refers to the entire nation as God's elect at least three times. Isaiah 45.4, 65.9, 65.22. He also refers to Jesus Christ as God's elect one in Isaiah 42.1. Some biblical scholars conclude that election is primarily used in the Bible in a corporate way, not of individuals per se. They go on to argue that Christ is God's elect and the church is elect in him or chosen in him. This is a biblical view of election known as corporate election. It presents the scenario in which God's will is for whosoever will to be saved, not just a predetermined, select, restricted number of people. And then individuals are actually saved when they receive Jesus Christ as their savior. It's a It's in harmony with that verse, God is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. It solves the problems raised by those who believe God's election is unconditional of certain individuals to salvation and that others are elected by God to damnation. Corporate election raises a few problems of its own, as all of these theories do, but in the end, those problems, I feel, are less injurious to the love of God Uh, for lost mankind. So um, interesting little word study there of of Israel being the elect nation. Certainly not everyone, uh, especially at this time, Paul says they're God's elect. Well, they were in disbelief, so he's not saying they're saved. But God was dealing with them as a group. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable or irrevocable. Which is it? How many say irrevocable? Raise your hand. 
How many say irrevocable? All right, we'll go with that. <laughs> Somebody get on your iPhone and see what the actual pronunciation is, would you please? It's probably either or, right? Hey, this is America. We can say whatever we want. <clears throat> A lot of time you'll hear this verse quoted to talk about how once God gives you a spiritual gift, he won't take it away. Or, and so you shouldn't let anybody else take it away by, um, you know, uh, a lot of times people in a ministry position or, uh, you know, will say, well, God's gifts are irrevocable uh, or irrevocable. Uh, and uh, therefore, you know, I, I'm not going to step down or, you know, God doesn't do that. But that's not at all what this verse means. In the context, this verse is discussing God's promises to the nation of Israel. His gifts and the calling to the physical descendants of Abraham were unconditional. And he will not and he cannot revoke them. That's the context. He says that you, God, God promised Abraham certain things and he will not revoke those promises no matter what Israel does. He's got a, you know, some conditional promises and you see what's happening to Israel today as a result of those conditional promises because they broke their part of the bargain. But in terms of a lot of what he told Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, hey, you know, <laughs> they are going to stand. Verse 30, for as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. I, I would get tongue-tied listening to Paul. He, he does a lot of this kind of stuff, but it, it's not that hard. I think you follow it probably better than me. It's actually like a mini history lesson. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he sinned for all of his future offspring as our representative. God immediately began to explain the way of salvation. As time went on, mankind continued in rebellion against God not wanting to retain the knowledge of God. That's, we can see that in history, but Paul had said that in Romans chapter 1. First in the days of Noah, then later at the Tower of Babel, God intervened in judgment. Then history took a critical turn. God chose Abraham and his descendants as a special people, his elect, through whom the promised Savior of the world would come. And so in a sense, from one point of view, he turned away from the Gentiles and just the general giving of, of the message of salvation, and he began specifically to work through the descendants of Abraham as his elect people. When the Savior came to his own and they rejected him because of their disobedience, the Gentile nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues received mercy as the gospel went out to them. And so God says, I mean, this is kind of a, you know, my, you know, less than scholarly approach to it. But God says, I'm just I'm working with all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. That's not working out. There's this flood thing I brought and then the Tower of Babel and the scattering. He said, tell you what, I'm going to pick one nation now and the gospel is going to go through them. That didn't work out either when Jesus came. And so he says, okay, I'm going to set those guys aside and go back and work among the Gentile nations. And they're going to get saved. Uh, and so, though disobedient as a nation, individual Jews could see the mercy shown Gentiles and they could still obtain mercy. And so, a little bit of what's happening in history. And then in verse 32, for God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. In other words, while the nation of Israel is set aside, God having given them over to their own decision to be disobedient, he's extending mercy on all 
both Jews and Gentiles, whosoever will believe in him and be saved. We live at the intersection of these great movements in history. The time of the Gentiles is nearly full. Israel is in her land. The great tribulation is within prophetic sight, uh, more so than ever before. Uh, I, I mean, I know previous, you know, 10 years ago people said that, but they were m making a lot of stuff up 10 years ago. I've studied prophecy for a long time. Doesn't mean I'm an expert or that I know more than anybody else, but I'll honestly say that 10 years ago people made up a lot of stuff. They, 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 well, they didn't make it up. They hyperbolized, they exaggerated. They, they would grab onto any news story and say, oh, this is, you know, this guy's the Antichrist. This is the mark of the beast. This is what's happening. And then, you know, it, it just wasn't. But now, all you have to, now, seriously, all we do Sundays, right, is read the news. And the secular world says, that's the mark of the beast. We don't have to say it anymore. Secular authors, they say, well, this is getting kind of creepy. This is like a 666 thing. This is a global government. Didn't the Bible say something about that? And we're like, well, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, it did. And we're careful not to say, hey, this, you know, this technology is this or that. We're just saying, hey, look how all this stuff is coming together. And so when I say that the great tribulation is within prophetic sight, I mean everything that I can think of that would need to happen could happen in a very short period of time. It's not like, it's not like 10 years ago you're thinking, how are we going to get into this cashless mark kind of a thing? Maybe the technology's there, but it's not widespread and people aren't ready for it. But that's not true anymore. You know, people are, people are letting themselves be chipped. They're wearing microchips. They're, they're tattooing, you know, with these readable things. There's, it, it, the only thing holding it back, really, um, it probably is the Lord because it's a much better system of commerce. Walgreens just put in new PayPass, you know, devices and stuff. Which is, I mean, it's no big deal, but little by little by little, we're getting set up for this cashless society. Sunday, I'm going to do an update that uh, Terry sent me and some others about how Sweden is almost completely cashless now. They, they, uh, you, you can't really even get money at the bank anymore. They don't do money. Obviously, bank robberies have gone down. <laughs> they, that, actually, it's funny. They've gone down from 116 to 7 uh, in one year because they don't have any money. They don't give out money. Everything's done electronically. It's make, and some people complain. It makes, you know, there's some areas where it's probably, but you can't, get out, you can't use money on a bus. Uh, you know, you have to have some other kind of uh, commodity in terms of an electronic device in order to get anything done in Sweden. And more and more, it's going to come to that where you're in, it, wherever you're going to go and you're going to want to pay for something and they're going to say, we don't take money. Well, what are you talking about? We're sorry, we're not, we're not equipped to take money. Do you have a credit card? Do you have a, you know, a microchip? Do you have a Vitaband? Do you have something like that? No. Left it at home. Well, sorry. Money, we can't, can't help you. It's kind of a niche thing. That's why it's not in the update, but there's a, they, they were talking about a big restaurant in New York City where you can't pay with money. They make it clear. They say, remember how you used to go, I used to go in to restaurants and say, I wonder if they take credit cards here. Remember that? And you go in and they say, hey, do you guys take credit? No, we don't take credit cards. No. And you say, well, sorry, I can't. All I have is cash. Now you have to go in and say, hey, do you take cash here? <laughs> Are you kidding? No, we don't take cash. You better be equipped with some kind of debit card or credit card or some kind of mark on your forehead 
uh, if you want to pay for your dinner. You know, that's just the way it is. Uh, and so that's what I mean. The Great Tribulation, it's within prophetic sight. I think obviously more so than ever before. The return of Jesus to resurrect and rapture the church, of course, is imminent. And so uh, exciting times, even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen.